Amen. Please be seated. If you will uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 16, we're going to read verses 19 to 31. We're going to meditate on the resurrection of Jesus by looking at this great parable. And after we're done reading it, you're probably going to go, why did he pick that one? <laughs> but the main reason I, well, there's two, two reasons. One is you get to listen to Jesus talking about the resurrection as a concept to people who are against him, to people who are looking down on him and his teaching. He's talking to skeptics who are not neutral I mean, in verse 14, it's going to say they, they ridiculed him. They, they turned up their nose at him. And so it's, it's just a great story where you say, how do you talk to people who don't believe this stuff? Right? And then secondly, this fits in well with our sermon series that we've been looking at the Old Testament and how it points to Jesus. And Jesus says, you're going to see, right? If, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not going to listen if someone rises from the dead. And so that's... So that's the method to my madness here. Uh, There's a really good, good parable that, that's challenging and comforting. So let's listen to Jesus tell this story and meditate on it together. This is the word of our God. Jesus tells a story. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from here to, to us, from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And this is the word of our God. It is true and trustworthy, and he has spoken to us today in love. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I pray that you would show us the, the truth, the reality, uh, the goodness and beauty of Jesus' resurrection for us, uh, that we would leave here more persuaded of your grace today, and that we would leave here as witnesses of eternity, uh, as a people who live knowing Jesus is alive 
and who will one day return, bringing this renewed world. So equip us to be the ambassadors that you have called us to be, uh, for your name and for your sake, we pray. Amen. So what did you find most troubling about Jesus' story? Right? I mean, in this modern age, if I had to guess, you have Jesus Christ, the most loving man who ever lived, talking about hell and judgment. Right? I mean, if you've ever had any kind of conversation about somebody with the Bible, this is one of those main objections to say, one, I just don't like it. I think it's a terrible idea. Uh, some folks find it ridiculous, and so they mock it. Um, Others find it harmful. Others f- are just afraid that Christians are going to use it as an excuse to, or to, to judge, to condemn, to be less loving instead of more loving. Right? And so what I want to do this morning is persuade us, let Jesus persuade us, because that's what he ends with, right? You need to be convinced of the resurrection from the dead to, to repent. Uh, but to persuade us that we all live forget forever. That's what the resurrection's pointing to. And because heaven and hell, the afterlife, this, this great future beyond is real, uh, it's calling us to live differently, uh, to turn our values upside down to match those of Jesus. That actually, I, I think what Jesus is doing here in, in, in chapter 16, he's talking to these hostile skeptics who do not believe in him, who think he's ridiculous. And he's persuading them that, hey, you guys need to learn how to be gracious and generous because if you don't change, here's the trajectory where you're going to end up. And so actually, if you believe in the doctrine of hell, it's designed by God to see God as more loving, more generous, more gracious, which will then, in turn, we're supposed to imitate him. So let's see how that works as we meditate on this together. Uh, The first thing this story shows us is that we are given, through the resurrection of Jesus, a permanent, unshakable identity, an unshakable identity. So look at the story here. You have two characters. You have a rich man. You have a beggar. uh, One who's comfortable, one who's miserable. uh, And the, the biggest contrast, I think, is that only one of them has a name, right? It's Lazarus. In fact, as you read through the Gospels, out of all the parables Jesus told, you can think of the famous one, the parable of the prodigal sons, the parable of the lost coin and the woman, who was, and the, the, the shepherd who went to find the sheep, and all these great stories, the only story Jesus ever tells and gives someone a personal name is this one right here, Lazarus. So you have a nameless man and a named man. Most of make you go, why is that? Well, if you look at the rich guy, right, shows you a person who's living the high life. I mean, we would say he's filthy rich. I mean, he is uh, not only in the 1%. Uh, he's showing off like he's in the 1% of the 1%. Um, he's wearing purple clothes. That's a royal color. Uh, he's living like a king. And the, the, in the Greek, in the original language, when it talks about feasting sumptuously, it's this idea of he is very uh, proud of what he looks like. He's a show-off. Uh, he's, he's showing off what he's got. And then one other thing you learn about this guy is um, 
Abraham calls him child, which means he's a physical descendant of Abraham. He's Jewish. He would be around the scriptures. He would know Moses and the prophets. He would have a context. And so what you have here is a highly successful person, extremely religious, or at least in a, from a religious culture, and you find him in hell, not in heaven. Why? Well, Lazarus helps us see that. What do you know about Lazarus? Well, he's a beggar. He's, I mean, Jesus is really good at painting extremes, right? He, you have someone at the top, and you have someone at the bottom of society. Right? I mean, he's, he's hungry. He's dependent on everyone else around him for mercy and help. Um, He's hoping for scraps. He'd be happy with leftovers. And seemingly in his life, the only attention that is highlighted is that he has dogs licking his wounds. Even in death, there's no mention of a burial. He can't afford his own grave. In contrast to the rich man who was buried. So you have Lazarus, whose whole life is suffering, living in the shadow of luxury, who's never received help or even attention from his rich, wealthy neighbor, and everybody knows is wealthy. And so why does God use, or why does Jesus use the name Lazarus? What's, this, is, this is the key. Right? Lazarus' name means God has helped. God has helped me. Right? The other main difference, and this is why Jesus uses his name, is that you have someone who believed and someone who didn't believe. Right. And the result is Lazarus has a name that kept, follows him even through death into God's presence, while the rich man is nameless. And that's what Abraham says, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted while you are in anguish. So here's one of the things I think you can pull from this parable here that that we're being shown by Jesus that to be a Christian, to be a believer, to be in the kingdom of God, right? You're given a name, an identity uh, that that lasts through death. It's permanent, right? That that even if you live this entire life, right, at the bottom of society uh, with nothing, you don't you can't even imagine what life is like to be comfortable because it's that hard, right? You have something that can never be taken away from you. The living God who knows you by name, right? And so what happens is, uh, Lazarus, anyone who believes, you're given an unshakable identity. And so Lazarus, though he's poor in this life, he's given a name, he's given comfort. This is what heaven does. He's he's given relationships after death. He's at Abraham's side. That's a portrait of friendship. Um, And so what you have is someone in the afterlife who had nothing to eat, but now he's feasting at heaven's banquet table in an honored, privileged position, treated like royalty. And the rich man, by contrast, and this is what Jesus is going after here, he has no name. He's only known by what he loved and lived for. And that's his identity. And it's left him less human. He's built his whole life for success. 
a lover of money. Right, it's really important to connect this story to what, what came before a conversation in, in verse, verse 14. Right, they're listening to Jesus talk about money and that everything you have is a gift from God. He who is faithful in much will be uh, faithful in more, or faithful in little will be faithful in more. Right? And they hear Jesus tell this great story, and the Pharisees say, ah, he's ridiculous. They laugh at him. And it says, because they're lovers of money. And Jesus says, I know your heart. You live for what other people think of you. But in God's eyes, your lifestyle is ugly, detestable. Right? And so Jesus is telling this story to these guys, saying, uh, you cannot build an eternal, unshakable, unfading identity on money, on wealth, on success. Uh, you, it won't get you into the kingdom of God. It won't last. Right? This is, this is uh, honest Jesus graciously showing his enemies, look on the trajectory you're on. Look where it leads. You need to listen. Are you listening? Right? And, and the effect of it is, right, if you live for money, success, power, all this stuff, right, it makes you less human, which means you're not going to be equipped to love people the way Jesus loves people. Right? You just ignore people that are different. Perhaps ridicule, sneer like the Pharisees. Right? I mean, that's, that's in the cultural waters right now of if somebody is different than you, uh, politically or otherwise, right? It's, it's really hard to build bridges because we feel superior because we're right. <laughs> right? And the gospel is showing us another way. Oh. So what, what the rich man is showing us is that you are, there are things that we love in this life that make us uh, less equipped to love people. That's what Jesus is showing us here. And he's not saying money's a bad thing. Right? Abraham was ridiculously wealthy. I mean, you can go back and read Genesis. He had all kinds of money and wealth and animals. And you have Joseph. He was a prince in Egypt. I mean, there are all kinds of stories about wealthy people in the scriptures. Money is not the target. Jesus is after the human heart. He's after what you value most. And money is one of those things that I use, we use, in all kinds of creative ways to look at, say, look at me, I'm somebody. Do you like me now? All right. I mean, that's what the, the rich man is doing. This whole idea of feasting sumptuously. Um, he's showing off, right? If this was a modern day rich person, he would have an Instagram and he'd be taking selfies in front of all of his stuff. And there probably would be the haunting picture of hungry Lazarus in the back corner right? Just unseen. And the alternative to the self-absorbed person in Jesus' story is to be a Lazarus. To have an identity that lasts. To be a person whose very self is formed by God has helped me. That though this world may not go well, I know comfort is coming. Right? That's what you're given through the resurrection. A self that endures any and all suffering that, that will throw at you, including death itself, because you have that personal attention from the living God. Jesus' story is very similar to Psalm 62. If you remember Psalm 62, when uh, David writes, uh, For God alone my soul waits, for my hope 
And that ancient word hope is a, a sure, certain future. My future is from him. He says, God is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. This is where I get my significance from. My refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him because God is a refuge for us. And then it goes on to say this. Those who are of low estate are just a breath. Those of high estate, right, the wealthy, they're a delusion. And in the balances, they go up. Together, they're lighter than a breath. So if riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Because it will not make you more of a person. So, first point here, right? You're given this unshakable identity, this name that lasts even through death itself. To be a Lazarus is to have hope after death. To look forward to something incredibly relational. Friendship. Feasting. Eating. Drinking. All those best memories that we have, right, are, are often, so often with people and around food. Right? And being known by name. People know you by name and they want you there. Uh, and rest from our sufferings. Right? And now we have anguish and sorrow. But you will be comforted. So that's the hope the resurrection gives, but what about those who just refuse to change their mind, who refuse the resurrection, who, as you can put it this way, what about those who think too highly of themselves? And what's really interesting is the way Jesus describes hell and the rich man in torment, because his particular form of selfishness, we'll put it that way, his sin, is still shaping and haunting him in the next. Right? And I know we have all kinds of preconceived notions of, of hell and judgment, um, hopefully not too informed by the cartoons. But it's really helpful. Let's let Jesus tell, form our imagination on this thing. Right? Just imagine if your particular form of selfishness were never interrupted by the gospel, by Jesus. That's what we got here. Look at the rich man in hell. He is con continuing the same selfish, uh, deluded, arrogant, graceless attitude, even in torment into eternity that he did in this life. Because look at what the rich man asked for. In verse 24, he says, Father Abraham, send me water. Actually, send Lazarus to give me water. Now, do you hear the ridiculous nature of this command? Right? Lazarus is now sitting with royalty in heaven. The rich man's now at the bottom. Jesus has turned their lives upside down. They swap places. God has exalted the humble and humbled the exalted. But you have the rich man still bossing Lazarus, treating him like a servant. Right? He's in hell, he's powerless, but he's acting like a king. And so commentators will say, you know, this guy's completely out of touch with reality, with what God has done and with what justice has taken place. He's in torment, but he's still acting like he's the Lord of his life and that everyone else should just be a servant. His heart hasn't changed. Right? And so even more, there's, a, there's so much irony in the question. 
right? Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. His whole life, did he ever at one moment, at least the way Jesus tells the story, show mercy to Lazarus? You have the merciless, merciless asking for mercy. And then another really interesting piece here is you look at the rich man. What did he not ask for as he's in torment in hell? Because Father Abraham responds to the rich man in verse 25, right? You received your good things in this life, and Lazarus had bad things, but between us is this great chasm nobody can cross, right? You can't switch places. Uh, the, the, The change is permanent. You're in one place or the other. And the rich man's response, it's surprising. For a second, it sounds like he's thinking of other people. (laughs) Right? He says, no, send Lazarus from the dead, it's no small ask, to go freak my brothers out and terrify them into repenting because I don't want them to end up in this place with me. But notice what he doesn't ask. He doesn't say, Lord, get me out of here. He isn't crying out in forgiveness, for forgiveness. He isn't falling down to his knees and say, what have I done to deserve to be here? Uh, he doesn't want out. Right? It's interesting. He's in torment, and he still doesn't want to change. And in fact, it sounds like he's blaming God for insufficient data. Right? My brothers are still in my father's house. They apparently love money like him, and they're in danger of ending up in torment. That's the implication here. And they must, too, love money and ignore the poor. They need warned. And the implication is if if they end up here, it's because they don't have enough information and they need a miracle, they need resurrection. And, of course, the irony is they have the scriptures. I mean, he's still blame-shifting. Right? I mean, I... I was trying all week to remember who this was, but I think it was Christopher Hitchens. Somebody smarter than me can, can tell me I was wrong. But um, I've heard this before, that when atheists get to, to heaven and they get that, that theoretical question, what will you do if you find out the resurrection was real, that God is true, and the Bible was telling uh, the real story of the world the whole time? What are you going to say? And, and this particular atheist said, I'm just going to tell God he didn't give me enough information. It wasn't clear enough. Right? So what does all that teach you? What is Jesus trying to say about the human heart? Uh, I found C.S. Lewis's descriptions. I, he meditated on this passage a lot, I think. Uh, re- they're really helpful here. Because in the problem of pain, you know what he says? In the long run, all objections, all those who object to the doctrine of hell comes this question. What do you want God to do? To wipe out past sins and at all costs give you a fresh start? He did that on Calvary. You want God to forgive them? They won't ask for forgiveness. You want God to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is what he must do. And so you have the rich man left alone on the other side of the chasm. He's in this God-forsaken state, left alone for eternity with his own self-deception and self-obsession, still believing himself to be more significant than he is. 
right? Sounds an awful lot like Paul in Romans 1 when he describes how God's justice works. That God, right, these human beings, that's us, claiming to be wise when we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling humans and birds and animals and creeping things, right? Worshiping creation, finding things in this world more important than God. What does God do? He gives them up to the lusts of their hearts, the multifaceted, never-ending creative desires of you get what you want. He leaves them alone. And so this story of the rich man is illustrating a man who has been given up to his desires, blind by his arrogance. He's never interrupted. And what that teaches me, teaches us here, that sin is not neutral. (laughs) That there's something in every human heart if it's never interrupted, if not dealt with, uh, that's making you less less than human. It's destructive. We see as Lewis, again, meditating on this story, says says this, uh, Christianity asserts that everybody is going on forever and it must either be true or false. There's no, no other way. If it's true, then there are many good things about which would not be worth bothering about if I'm only going to live 80 years. But I better worry about them if I want to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or jealousy are slowly getting worse, so then gradually in 80 years in my lifetime, nobody will notice. But what about in a million years? It'd be absolute hell. He keeps going, in fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct term for it because hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. And you're still distinct from it from a time, and you may even criticize it and say, "Ah, I should stop doing that, that's not good. But there will come a day when you can no longer stop it. And then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even enjoy it, just the grumble itself going on forever and ever like a machine. That's the rich man. See, the trajectory of sin is not pretty if God does not interrupt us with Jesus. And part of the doctrine of hell, part of it, right, we're not saying everything here, is that those who are inside are not begging to get out. The heart is hardened. They don't want to change because they've said to God, just leave me alone. And so that's the haunting question that the resurrection brings. It's because Good Friday happened. And it's telling you something about your heart, that you need a savior to interrupt the things you love. And so what is your identity wrapped up in? What do you love most? What keeps you from showing mercy? What keeps you from humbling yourself? I mean, one other quick note about hell Do you notice what's missing from this passage? And I remember hearing a a story about um, some Christians, I don't remember where, but they they were celebrating when some evil people were just another religion where they're saying, oh, they're just gonna go to hell anyway. What's it matter? You don't have any kind of mocking or rejoicing in this parable. You don't have Jesus sneering at those who reject him. You don't see him mocking the mockers. He takes them absolutely seriously. 
If anything, there's tenderness, because when Abraham calls the rich man my son or child, right, he's talking to, he's putting the Pharisees in the story. Right? There's no celebration. And in fact, if you read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, you find Jesus lamenting judgment, saying, Whoa. He said, How I would have gathered you like a mother hen protects her chicks when he looks at the city that crucified him. And then in Luke 19, when he sees the city, he weeps. Right? Of course, Jesus is basically saying, I would have died for you, but you were not willing. And so, this is a massive paradigm shift to believe in this doctrine, to take eternal life seriously. But if it does, it's trying to interrupt that selfishness. It's pushing you to be more gracious, to be generous, to see the poor, to use money to give instead of hoard, in imitation of Jesus. And so this parable is actually an invitation to these skeptics to say, hey, have you listened to the scriptures, to Moses and the prophets? Go doubt your doubts. Go read the scriptures. Right? The story, you can see, it's, it's like a scalpel. He's going right after our pride and our tendency to ignore people we don't like. He's going after what we treasure most. So, last question here. How do you get your selfishness interrupted? Right? You, you have the hope of, of this identity, this name that will last through death, through resurrection, but we have this selfishness that needs interrupted. Listen to Jesus' invitation to those who, who despise him and look down on him in verse 29. Abraham says, look, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. And that phrase, to rise from the dead, right, we're in Luke, but it's the exact phrase to describe what happened to Jesus on Easter morning, that first Easter morning. And so what I think he's saying here, if you were standing at the empty tomb, staring at Jesus' nail-pierced hands and feet, the wounds, and you see him walking, you see him breathing again, just to see someone come back from the dead will not interrupt your selfishness. Right? The Christ, sorry, Charles Dickens, right? The Christmas story got it wrong. <laughs> right? you remember the ghost of Christmas past come and say, look at how horrible you are. And because he's got this message from the dead, right? he becomes less Scrooge and generous. Now Jesus is saying here, no, hell is real. I'm warning you. But fear of hell simply because a messenger comes back from a dead will not change the human heart. So who do you need to listen to to have your heart changed? And his answer is the Old Testament. <laughs> uh, the scriptures. The only reason you even know what the resurrection of Jesus is about is if you have the Old Testament, the scriptures, to interpret them, to explain the event. Right? Moses being Genesis through Deuteronomy. It starts off with that great prophecy in Genesis 3 that uh, as shame and death have entered the world, um, it's telling you the world is not how it's supposed to be, and it says, hey, one day God himself will send a son of Adam, a son of Eve, 
to crush the serpent's head in order to defeat death and overcome evil. Jesus is that guy. We read Isaiah 52, talking about a suffering servant to explain that when he died, it was to interrupt our selfishness, to show us what we're really like. That by his wounds we are healed, by his death he made many accounted righteousness, accounted righteous. What an astounding statement. By Jesus' death, you and I, who have selfish human hearts, are made declared righteous in God's sight. Right? So imagine you have a, a huge debt and someone comes in, you're getting ready to go broke as you pay this bill. And they say, hey, oh, by the way, I paid that bill for you, right? That'd be something to rejoice. But if they come along and say, hey, not only did I pay your debt, but I filled your bank account to something you could never, ever drain, no matter how foolish you are, right? That's, that's, that's something you can't measure. That's the gift. Being made righteous in God's sight. So you become a Lazarus. Your whole identity is God has helped me. See, the goal is to listen to Moses and the prophets, and it helps explain and make clear what happened that Easter morning and, and that the whole weekend. This is what hell helps you understand. Look at how much God loves you. Because you have Jesus, the king of all the earth, royalty, who makes himself poor for our sake so that we might become rich in him. And you have him suffer and die and like a rich man. Only his clothes are stripped away. He dies naked. He, he has God forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus died like Lazarus, buried in someone else's tomb. It wasn't even his stuff. But notice what Jesus didn't cry out for on the cross. He didn't say, get me off of here. It's Father, your will be done. I'll stay for them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, through the cross, you're given a name, and you're welcomed at your Father's table to feast and eat into eternity, and you're given this unshakable identity because Jesus purchased your place in heaven. And it's Moses and the prophets that explain all that. Will you listen to them? Where else do you get that hope of new creation? That you could have an eternity on a new earth without tears, right? Of having all this mess being transformed into beauty, of wilderness being turned into a garden, of having sighing flee, right? Where else are you going to find, hey, you can mock death. You can say, death, where is your sting? That's Hosea. That's the Old Testament. Will you listen to the prophets? See, point I've been trying to persuade us of, if you believe in this doctrine of hell, as as Jesus clearly did, because he talked about it more than anyone else in all the scriptures, you not only get a clear picture of just how much Jesus loves you, but you also get a portrait of what great, how to relate to people and how to relate to your stuff. It'll make you more gracious and more generous because you know where the trajectory leads. I'll end with this. All right, Jesus lives out his very words. Right? You remember what happens in Luke 24 on the, that first Easter? 
he rises from the dead and he comes across two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And they, they meet somebody from, uh, <laughs> they meet the stranger on the road. Right? And they don't recognize Jesus. And so what, what happens twice is as Jesus is talking to them and they explaining uh, what happened in Jerusalem with the resurrection, Jesus says, it says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Not even Jesus' resurrection was sufficient. He had to turn to his disciples and explain to them the scriptures, say, here's what happened. And the, the effect, you know what these guys said? Did not our hearts burn within us while Jesus opened to us the scriptures? Did not our hearts melt? Did not our hearts soften when we see just how much God loved us? That is good news. May go listen to Moses and the prophets. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus and his resurrection, and I pray that you would lead us all to faith and repentance, that we might know him, uh, this gift of kindness, and that it that we would yeah, be a people who, who are living witnesses of, of values turned upside down, that we love people more than stuff, that we would seek first your righteousness and your kingdom, and that people would see just how different it is to be known by the living God, to have Christ know us by name and pursue us even to death on a cross. So may we leave here with great joy, with our hearts burning within us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.